This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a, a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. I would like to welcome uh, the one they call half man, half amazing, two-time Corn Ferry Tour winner, uh, Andres Gonzalez, to the Sub-70 podcast. Uh, thanks for doing this, man. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Yeah, Jason, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's going to be fun. Uh, how are things in, in your world, right? You're kind of changing gears, doing some media stuff for the PGA Tour, um, some Corn Ferry work with kind of watching those guys play and giving your commentary. Like, How did that come about, and, and how much are you enjoying being on the media side of stuff? Uh, yeah, last season, my last tournament was August, and I just kind of stepped back for a second. My last few years weren't, I guess, successful in a way. Uh, I was traveling. I had full status. I just wasn't playing as well. I was making 50% of the cuts and just wasn't really providing, I guess, and that's the tough part about golf. When you start playing to provide or to make money you're you're kind of behind the eight ball you got to go out and play to win and and play to score and i just wasn't really doing that uh stepping away i contacted jay monahan uh the commissioner of the pga tour and alex baldwin the commissioner of the corn Ferry tour and just told him that i really liked the way the pga tour runs their business and was interested in getting into the media side and they both kind of steered me in the right direction. So I started to work for PGA tour live, uh, that streams on ESPN plus, I kind of got in at a good time when, uh, they signed a nine year contract with ESPN. So, you know, I still like, I would still love to be playing, but my priorities have changed a little bit as far as I've got six, sorry, three kids under the age of six. And you know, it's just, it's tough when, when you're on the road a lot and you're not really making money. So I was starting to think about making money more than, uh, more than playing golf. Do you think, you know, cause you've, you've had a good long career and as, as you start getting later in that career, do you think it's, is it, is it, is it more of a mental thing? Is your body breaking down a little bit where you're not playing as good as you once did, or is it just sort of a priority change where it's like you kind of had your run and you're okay with being, you know, a part-time golfer at this, this point and kind of use your personality to, to kind of, you know, start sort of phase two of your career. What, what sort of shifted in your game that, because you've always, you know, you've been out there a long time doing it, man. Right. I I don't want to put any blame on uh, my family, but I think once I started having children, my priorities just changed. I wasn't interested at being at the golf course eight hours a day and treating it like a, a real job, which is tough. Uh, I don't think I was ever somebody that was, blessed with a whirlwind of talent as far as playing golf, but I always had the ability to outwork people and, and believe in myself. Um, and once I had kids, I get out to the golf course and I just didn't really have the urge to stay out there. I wanted to, to be with them a little bit more. And for me, I needed to be, have a club in my hand all the time. I needed to really be doing it all the time to feel like I had uh, an advantage, whether or not that was the case. I mean, it's just kind of what I got in my head and right or wrong. That's, that's what it was. So I just stepped away. I still have a feeling that I'm going to play at some point again, 
but as of right now, trying to figure out the next chapter of my life, uh, I, w- I would like to try to create something in the media world to where hopefully at some point I can, I can keep playing a little bit down the road. Is that hard to do then? Like I said, in, and I think, you know, I understand being friends with the guys on tour of the effort that goes into being prepared to be on tour and play against the best in the world, right? It's a lot of behind the scenes work. It's right. a ton. If you're going to play part-time, does that kind of take pressure off of you a little bit? We can kind of go out there and just freewheel it and have fun. Or do you have to then put a shit ton of work in those three weeks ahead of time to get yourself ready? Cause you know, you want to play well, there's pride in what you do. So how do you then, I don't know, as competitive as you are, as long as you've done it, how do you become sort of a part-time golfer, but still kind of try to get the most out of that? Yeah, that's the tough thing is that I think if you ask anybody uh, that plays or has played at the highest level, there's really no such thing as a part-time golfer. Um, It's a game where you have to really be all in uh, to really be competitive, but um yeah, I have a sponsor exemption into the Corn Ferry event in Knoxville coming up in the middle of May. And I, I'm kind of going in with the attitude that I'm as good once as I ever was. So I know that there are days where I can play as well as anybody in the world. And I think that was one thing I struggled with even when I was playing full time was just consistency, uh, putting four rounds together and putting weeks together. Uh, I think if you see most of the players on tour, most guys make most of their money in about a four-week stretch sometime during the year. Uh, I think you're seeing that a little bit right now with Scotty Scheffler with he just winning the, the Honda and a couple – sorry, not the Honda, the uh, Bay Hill. Yeah. Yep. And a, a few weeks back winning Phoenix. So, I mean, he's on a hot run right now, and uh, we'll, we'll see how the rest of that goes. But – I'm 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 excited to play just because I miss the competition and I miss the camaraderie of being out there with players. Scheffler was one of those subjects I was going to bring up to you and, and kind of put your, your you know let's put your media hat on and player hat because it would be both. Like he, you can see the rise starting to happen. And what do you think happens with those guys where all of a sudden they're not finishing top six or top twelve? They're winning. What do you think that formula is with a young talent like that who seems to have all the tools? We're all of a sudden now different level. What 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 can change? Or I mean, you've won twice on on a major tour. Like what 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 happens with that? How do you? Find I that? think just self belief. I know that if you're playing on the PGA Tour, you understand that you're really good. You understand the physical aspects of what you're practicing, what you're mentally working on, has gotten you there, and you're trying to get better and better at it but you're chasing that goal, which is winning. And if you don't do it, it's, it's, there's always a little bit of doubt on whether or not it's ever going to happen. And once it does, it almost seems like, all right, I've either got that monkey off my back or since you have done it, there's belief now and there's actual proof that you can do it. So it, it definitely makes it a lot easier. And when you go out, it gives you a lot of comfort as well. I mean, I'm sure he was, he seemed pretty comfortable with, he's finished second, third, fourth so many times in his young career. But once he won a few weeks back in Phoenix and knowing that he can do it, it makes it a lot easier going forward. And he obviously did it again at Bay Hill. 
And I wonder how much that Ryder Cup helped him too, right, where he played really good under a shit ton of pressure, even though he was on that team without a win. Boy, he sort of, I think he showed a lot of people. I mean, you kind of kind of see what that kid was made of, but you could really see, maybe that was the springboard, huh? Yeah, for sure. I I think that when you play under a lot of pressure like that and it's one-on-one, I mean, you're almost, it's the closest thing that we have to, prize fighting is one-on-one playing and and playing for your country it's it from i i've never played in a Ryder cup or a president's cup and everything i hear from everybody it's a different pressure than you've ever felt in your life and i'm a little bit jealous that i don't really foresee that happening unless something really crazy happens in my life but it's it's a really cool feeling and it's it's fun to watch friends like Scotty and, you know, and, and other players representing the U.S. come out and show that kind of emotion and that kind of excitement. When you talked about winning and you had those two victories, did, in you know, always from talking to the players, the second one means a lot to the guys on tour of level respect, right? You can do it once, but then back it up with another win. Did, did that do that for your career where you won at a high level twice? So did it help that comfort level knowing you can get the job done. Did that sort of feel like it took your game to another level as well, knowing you can get over the finish line when the pressure was on? Yeah, and that was the second the second win for me secured my PGA Tour card for the third year on to be on the PGA Tour for the 15th season. And the fact that I lost – so my rookie year was 11. I lost my card. I won in 12 on Corn Ferry or nationwide at the time and then got my lost my card sorry that got got my card for 13 I lost it in 13 went back to 14 I won again and that really made me think that all right now I'm going to my third year back I'm going to be more comfortable out there and I, I went out and I started playing pretty well and I had the best year of my career which was the 15 season and out of the five years that I played, it was the only year that I retained my card. And again, this was kind of what went into me stepping away was I played five years on tour, which is very, very good. Like Chris, but it just, I finished 114th. It wasn't like I was beating the world. I was busting my ass and was, in in reality, mediocre as far as, as tour standards. Uh, and when I did step away, that was something I kind of had to come to grips with, is that I am a very, very good golfer, but to be top 150 in the world is super elite and very, very hard to do. And with the amount of time that I needed to put in to be able to do that, it just I needed to be 100% golf in my mind to do that. And I just, I wasn't willing to do that with uh, having a family and having my kids. But it's a fine line, right? It is such a fine line because obviously you're a great player. You played, you know, every level you've played at, you've been, let's call it successful. You played at the highest level for five years. You won on corn Ferry. You know, UNLV team was outstanding. You guys, you've had a hell of a career. It is, though, a fine, fine line between being 100th on the money list and 30th, right? It is minuscule. It's 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 so small. Right. 
is that a fair assessment in your world? Like it's just it's that the comp- the guys are all so good. It's not much difference between that. It's one or two tournaments. It's it's a break here. It's getting on a heater for three weeks. Like, what am I trying to say? It's it's you could have just as easily been twenty fifth on the money list that year. You were one fifteen. It's that close. Yeah. After the, I, I kind of just started leaking oil uh, that year. To be honest, I, I when we went into the that little Christmas break area after the fall season. I was 23rd on the on the FedEx, and then slowly just kind of kept creeping down, creeping down, and ended up finishing 114. But I think something else goes along with playing out there and not being at the top level is that I kind of understood that I was out kicking my coverage the whole time, and to a fault almost, to where – maybe I didn't believe in myself quite as much as I should have, even though I, I portrayed it, but I had so much fun in my experience. I didn't miss anything when I was out there. I had a great time on and off the course. <laughs> was there any moments when you got out there where you're like, holy shit, I'm on the PGA tour and that's X and I'm hitting balls next to him. Or, I mean, you can't let yourself get too down in that rabbit hole because like you're there to compete and beat that guy. But was there some cool moments like that first year where you're like, this is pretty damn cool. Like, I, I, uh, I like this. I think the main thing that really changed my mind, so I didn't get on my, my PJ card until 11. But in 2006, my senior year, I was an All-American at UNLV, and I got a sponsor exemption into the Las Vegas PGA Tour event, which was, I was probably four months as a professional at that point. And I got out there, and was just astounded that every single ball in existence is on the range and you can just choose whatever ball you wanted to hit and they're all brand new. And that was, that was kind of the first time that I really, uh, really thought that it was a pretty cool thing. And there's dry cleaning in the locker room and they give you tickets to whatever show you wanted in Vegas. My wife and I girlfriend at the time just lived that whole week up. And I had a ball. That's that first event I played with Rocco Mediate in the final round and we got up onto the I was we didn't play great, so we were finishing on the front nine on Sunday. I made the cut, made made of my first actual check, which was fun. And we got up onto the fifth hole, which is a par three, and there was a two group weight or something. He pulled up a couple chairs under the under the tree and he goes, Hey, uh you know, you're going to have a lot of people telling you that you need to change this. You need to change that to get on the PGA tour. And he goes, don't listen to anybody. You just keep doing what you're doing and get better at exactly what you're doing. And that was a huge, uh, boost for me and my mentality. The fact that I was doing the right thing, or at least he put into belief. He's like, everybody's doing the right thing. It's just a matter of how much you believe in it and how much you believe in yourself. Well, coming from a guy like that, who was out there for like ever, right? right. I mean, yeah. Yeah, how cool is that? Yeah, and a couple for me to play with him there, and then a couple of years later, he loses to Tiger in the playoff out at uh, out at Tory. And looking back on it now that I've played Tory quite a few times in uh, the Farmers, it's just astounding to me how much that actually played into him because looking at his game compared to everybody else, Torrey is not a course that you'd expect someone like Rocco Media to really compete at. 
but he did. Yeah, he seems more like a colonial guy or a John Deere classic or something, right? I mean, it's just, right, just it, yeah, blunt and pitch and try yeah. to get it out there. Right. Yeah. You know, I always say talent, man. He was out there for like 25 years. So, Gosh, that, that's, that, that's the thing for me is that I'm always asked who impressed me when I was out there. And, you know, at, when I'm asked that by members at my club, I'm just constantly saying, like, I've, I'm pretty good. So there's not really anybody that is super impressive anymore to me that I really wow at, but it's the guys that can do stuff that I can't do. Like the Bubba Watsons and the Rory McElroy's and the Dustin, like the guys that just bomb it. And then my answer was always, it wasn't ever any of those guys though. It was always Colt Nost. Colt Mm -hmm. was the shortest guy on the tour for most of his nine years. And just consistently pounded fairways. He was the best long iron fairway wood player, hybrid player I'd ever seen. And he could roll it. And that mm-hmm. equals a, a career of nine years for somebody that when you look at him, it's it's hard to believe that he was a professional athlete for that amount of time. Yeah, I think guys like Brian Gay, not the longest off the tee or anything, but 20 years out there, man. Of- yeah. You know, flagging it with wedges and putting and chipping, and it's good enough. You know, he's, I would say, Brian Gay's a great player. What, four or five wins in 20 some years? It's unbelievable. Yeah. And if you, if you watched it though on the driving range, you would be like, that's solid, but it's not, you know, it doesn't wow you. Right. I mean, it's good, but it doesn't, it's not a DJT shot where you're just like, holy shit, is that thing just pounded? Right. It just you know, looks effortless length that I'm like, I, I just don't have that shot. That's the thing about, Colt and Brian Gay, everything they do, you're going to go to most country clubs and most people have that shot <laughs> at some point, whether or not there is a, as consistent as, as it is. Brian and Colt, like most people can do what they do, which is the most impressive thing to me, that they're able to take that and play at the highest level. But they can't do it from 150 yards and in. Oh, I mean, I agree. are just sick. I mean, right there, I mean, Brian Gay from Buck Fifty and in is like elite good. One hundred percent. But what I'm saying is is that you go to any country club and let's say Brian Gay hits it to two feet, that country club guy can do the same thing, whether or not he does it on call, not nearly as much, obviously. Exactly. Yeah. But when you get someone like Dustin, like nobody really has that. Like that's no. that's elite elite, right? But right. He's, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to see how many different ways uh, in the game of golf you can get it done. Well, I think the other interesting thing is I, I think like somebody like a Dustin Johnson has more leeway because of the amount of talent physically and everything. We're like, let's just take Colt for doing it for nine years, right? Like there's no margin of error for what he has, right? He's got to get the most out of himself every single year to make that work. Dustin right. could be at 92% in probably top 10 it right. with that elite talent, right? So it's always amazing to me, like, the effort and time and how how much mental fortitude those guys have who don't have all the physical tools in the world compared to the other elite athletes out there that still compete and win. It's yeah, pretty like, crazy. Currently with the, the same thing, I mean, John Rom's currently number one, and I haven't seen him really make a putt in about a month, and he hasn't finished really outside the top 20. Right. <laughs> right. Just, Right. Every, That's a shit every, week. His shit, every facet shit week. of his game is just so good that it 
when it really gets going and everything's working, it's like, how, how do you beat them? Right. And a bad week is T22. Right. Yeah. That's that's elite talent there, right? But I, I'm with you. I, I love the guys who just sort of, like, they just get it out of the dirt, get the most out of the talent they have, and they make a hell of a career out of it. You know, Yeah, I'm who's doing it right? Champions. Peter Malnati's doing it right now. Yeah. He's, and he's 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 gained, actually, a fair amount of distance, so I don't want to throw him in that. And that that guy works as hard as anybody I've seen, and he he definitely is always smiling. So there's a lot to said for that. But Denny McCarthy doesn't bomb it, does he? Exactly. I don't think he's kind of always there. He's, you know, he's kind of like an ATM at this point. Yeah, it's fun to watch guys like that that are just consistently getting more comfortable and getting better and really understanding what they need to do to succeed. Because like we said before, it just there's so many different ways to do it and finding that right equation for you to to do it is pretty important. Well, I would like to be Brian Gay's caddy on the Champions Tour in about the next five years. I think he's going to, he's going, he's going to do quite well on that second circuit. He's going to, I mean, you want to talk about a guy, you know, those guys who were competitive on the PGA Tour, then go to the Champions Tour. Look out, he's he's going to win some trophies. I agree with you. Have you been uh, following Stephen Alker? Yeah, it's that's impressive. That's a pretty fun story too. And yeah. You know, I played with him a lot on the Corn Ferry Tour the last few years. And last year we were in Salt Lake playing the Utah Corn Ferry event. And I asked I asked him, I was like, man, when, you're pretty close to 50, aren't you? He's like, I turned 55 days ago. I leave from here and I'm going up to the Boeing Classic. And he Mondays in and he just starts going off, man. He played his first nine events and his lowest finish was 16th with a win. He lost in a playoff to Phil in the tour championship. And that was, it was really fun to see those first nine events. I saw a stat that he had won more money in those nine events than he had his entire career. Look at Doug Barron. Same thing, right? Yes. Can't out there, sort of out there in the PJ tour, took a bunch of years off and taught as a teaching professional. Then like at 48, just recommitted himself and he's been kicking the hell out of it. Right. Monday in and won. I mean, it's yeah, just, it's, it's cool, and that's that's honestly what I what I miss the most about playing is being able to be out there and be around guys like that and just say, "Congrats, man!" I mean, it's it's fun to watch. It's I don't want to get sappy, but it's it's kind of emotional and super exciting for me just standing on the outside looking in. Well, imagine what it means to like a Doug Barron, right? Like, it's it's sort of. I would have to imagine, and, and I've had him on the podcast and I've talked to him, super nice guy, but it's got to be like redemption or, or to, to let his talent finally come out of how great of a player he really is, right? It's got to be so rewarding, right, to be yeah. one of the best out there at this point. And, and I know he was mini-tour grinding the hell out of it to get ready, playing against the younger guys and working his ass off. And then the opportunity came across, and he's a multiple tour winner out there and one of the best out there right now if you look at it all. So how cool is that story? Just, uh, you know, he probably didn't get the most out of his PGA Tour career he wanted, but, boy, is he making up for it now. It's a great story. Yeah, I I don't think anything can go past either. We can't look beyond Bernhard. I'm like, how is this guy still doing this? I don't know. Because usually at that point, those guys – their body just starts to being done, right? Like, you're 62, 63, 64. It's over at that elite level. Well, right? even they just keep at, doing it. 
even if your body's 100%, you think at that age, how old is he now, 63? 64. 64. When are you going to be like, all right, I'm just losing interest? I think he's so driven. That's 26 years older than me. He's got more money than he can spend in the rest of his lifetime. And you're traveling on the road 18, 20 weeks a year. It just feels like at some point, More than whether, your, whether your body's holding up, it just seems like you just might want to give your brain a rest at some point. But He must he, love it to like you can't imagine, right? Because you're right, he doesn't need to do this. Oh, He he's, just loves it. He, he, must he just loves love it. it. And it's hard... It's hard to tell the stoic German on whether or not he does love it. Whenever you look at him, he always looks so serious. But there's got to be love involved if you're doing it that long and doing it that, at such a high level. And he's one of those guys, too, where the work off the golf course must be tremendous because his body looks like he's 34 years old still. Yes, 100%. Right, and he still hits it out there. He jokes he doesn't hit it very far. I, I watched him play a couple of years ago when there was a senior major uh, the Players' Championship up in our Chicagoland area. Dude, this hit pretty good. It's like 280 in the air. I mean, if you took him out to a normal member's country club, he'd bomb it past most people. It's, oh, it's popped pretty sure. good. It's It ain't short. It's, it's the, the only reason he says he doesn't hit it that far is because he's 64 and he, he's just comparing himself to the 20 to 25-year-olds that are coming out that all absolutely tomahawk it. But that's that's another thing is that he's playing on the Champions Tour. The courses aren't that long. They play in his favor. So it's really it's fun to watch, man. Yeah, it's great to watch. And he finishes t you know he finishes twenty eighth at the Masters every year still. So you know thirty fourth. He's still you know fairly competitive. So he's he. I don't think he gives himself enough credit. He, I watched him play up. It was fun to watch it up close. And he still has enough horsepower to make it work. There's right. some pop in the bat still. Yeah, I think that's very obvious just with his finishes. It's not like he's dinking it out there and having woods into every hole. No. Oh, the 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 German uh, driving machine still is uh, – all, all eight cylinders are still firing. It's it's amazing to watch. Um, I was going to ask you this, too, because you went to your UNLV thing. Your team, man, you, you guys had some talent on that team. Who? How many of those guys you played with ended up playing on the PGA Tour at some point? The year that I – the years that I played was – just myself and Ryan Moore. But I'm six years younger than Charlie Hoffman. I'm four years younger than Adam Scott. Uh, Bill Lundy, who's retired now. Jeremy Anderson was on that national championship team, and he played for a year. There's there's a bunch of guys. Like, uh, now, Kurt Kitty, Amma's out there. I haven't. I didn't cross paths with him either. Ryan was the only one I crossed paths with. But our coach and program at UNLV put us in such a situation where it was hard to not succeed. You had every opportunity. You could go anywhere in town, essentially, without a problem. And the amenities were all there. So it was it was. It's, it's unfortunate to see where the program's at right now. And it it'll definitely turn around. Um, there's a, there's just a little bit of a I'm trying to think of the word, a, a, a turnover where these guys aren't constantly coming through. It's a little bit of a downtime, but that school was a lot of fun, man. 
Yeah, the, the lineage there for a while. I thought Adam was on the same – I must have been off a year. I thought he was on the same team when you were there. But, I mean, Ryan I, Moore – We we would have been on the same team, but Adam left after a year and a half. He, oh, that's right. Yeah, he just kind of came over. Uh, I think the main reason he went to UNLV was he was work, working with Butch Harmon at the time, and Butch was in Vegas, so he came out for a year and a half to go to school. Uh, I think he was – Everybody was planning on him staying at least two years, but he just never came back at that Christmas break and said, I'm going to turn pro, guys. Yeah, well, talent was there to do so, obviously. Uh, Ryan Moore, though, in college, man, that, I mean, the amateur career he had, was he was he that much better than you guys, or was it yes. still closer? Could you see that like talent far, in college? Far none, yes. Uh, Ryan, I've told everybody this, Ryan was the in, most influential person in my life as far as golf my my dad had a bit to do with it too but like he he was a dentist he was a 12 handicap the only thing that he just believed in me and provided funds for me to to pursue it um but my most influential person was ryan he was always the best we played junior golf together we played college golf together and he was constantly expecting perfection. And if he didn't win the golf tournament, whatever he was playing in, then he failed. And that, that was a pretty big uh, realization for me on what you actually needed to do to play good golf. So it was sort of an influence of excellence, of what it takes to be excellent day in, day out. I'm assuming he worked on everything. Like, that, that just wasn't the golf part of his life. Probably the discipline of his entire life was sort of like that, so he could be at that highest level. Is that sort of a fair statement? Yeah. I think he was pretty lazy by nature, to be honest, but his self-belief was higher than anybody I'd ever met. He believed that he was the best player and that he was the guy that was going to win, and if he didn't win, then he failed which to me, uh, I went to Oregon State my first year, and I got kicked off the team because I had a little too much fun and didn't really attend school too often. Um, Slight problem, but yeah, overcomable. Yeah. I didn't find it a problem. The coach did. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I transferred to Vegas, Ryan vouched for me as far as the coach went, and I just tried to sign up and do whatever Ryan did because in, we grew up in Washington together. In junior golf, he was the number one in the country. We get to college, he was number one in the country. And then he had that amazing summer, and he came back after that amazing summer, which is crazy because most guys would – their stock value is pretty high there, right? So they're probably going to leave school, and he ended up sticking around, which was one of the best years for me to be around that we, I came downstairs every day and on the mantle, we'd have the USAM trophy, the public links trophy, the NCAA championship, the world am championship, uh, the Western am, like everything that he won across the board was sitting on our mantle. And for me coming down every day, I just wouldn't see this. And I, I understood that I had to get better. Like if I wanted to do this, I had to get better. Um, one of the things that first really started to make me think that I wanted to play professionally, and this is another thing that why Ryan was so influential on me, his first U.S. Public Links Championship that he won in 2002, for Christmas that year, he asked me if I would caddy for him. 
And so in 2003, I got to caddy for Ryan in the Masters at Augusta, and it was the first time in my life that I started to actually think that I was going to try to play professionally. Uh, I knew I was good enough up until that point to play in college and to compete with really no goals. It was more just wanting to have fun and be on a college team and enjoy the college experience. But when I went there for the first time, and I saw all the best players in the world at arguably the best tournament in the world. I, I wasn't really that impressed. I thought, I, I thought that everybody would be a lot better. And so I got in this little qualm with myself that evening. Just like, how can you say that about the best players in the world and whatever, this little inside my head argument. And all of a sudden a light bulb went off and I was like, Oh, I'm pretty good. Right. And it's, from yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. From that moment on, I started playing with an actual purpose to play professionally and to do it for a living. And that it just changed the mindset and the goal of how I was going to attack my practice, how I was going to attack playing. And it was a ton of, sorry, that was a long winded answer. <laughs> well, no, but it makes sense, right? Because it, it showed that you had the tools in the toolbox, right? Like I got that. I yeah. can do that. And this guy's a five time tour winner, whatever it might be. Or this guy's ranked fourth in the world. I can do that. It also made me realize that, when you're following golf on TV, professionals seem a lot better because the coverage is following the guys that are in the lead and the top 15 for the most part. Unless unless Tiger's in 30th place or who gets, gets a lot of media, uh, let's say Jordan Spieth is in 30th place, they'll show a few shots here of them. But when you're showing the top 15 guys, in a field that are on the PGA tour and are elite players, they're all playing very well and confident in what they're doing. So shots are going to be closer, more putts are going to be made. And when you see that on coverage, sometimes it can be a little demoralizing, but at the same time, when you go out there and you're playing with someone that's in 30th place, making a pretty good check or even 25th place, making a pretty good check, it's just not as sharp and they're not threatening to win, but they're, threatening to make a pretty good living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're just playing good, solid golf, but it's not PGA Tour winning level golf or Corn Ferry Tour winning level golf that week. It's just good, right. solid golf. That's that's what's so interesting about the tour also, is that when you're making cuts, and let's say you're finishing 50th to 65th, but you're making a lot of cuts, and like it's right there. You know things are right there, and it's just a matter of keeping that positive attitude that it's about to click. It's about to click, and making cuts is a huge thing because you're playing against the best players in the world. What's the biggest difference you saw from the, from the, from the corn Ferry tour to the PGA tour, not, you know, disregarding the price or the purse sizes and the prestige, but just golf courses, the level of talent. Is it, is it closer than most people think, or is there a pretty good sized gap between the two? Uh, talent level. It's, it's really, 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 really close. The biggest difference that I could say is that, one, courses are a little more demanding. Uh, fairways are more of a premium. I'd, I'd say that's the only part that's a lot different. The fairways are more of a premium on the PGA Tour. You have to, The rough is longer. You could see it in the, the Arnold Palmer this last week. That rough was yeah. long. And yeah. it looked like a U.S. Open the way it was playing. Um, the real difference that you can see is the overall – swag that people have on the tour people are very confident everybody's an alpha out there and most guys 
kind of that you that you choose to be around are all kind of running their mouth to each other, all in good fun. But in practice rounds, everybody has such high self belief, and that's that's the biggest thing in any aspect of whether you're playing sports or whether you're in business or whatever you do in the world, if you don't have self-belief, you don't have a prayer. You have to believe in yourself. Would you play practice rounds by yourself? Would you try to do money games? Like what did you do to get yourself sort of competitive ready for that week? How did you sort of approach it? I, it's hard for me to not play golf and play for free. Um, I have to have something on the line, whether it's $5, whether it's, $10 $10 NASA, $20 NASA, $100 NASA. Uh, my standard game out there was usually a $200 team match play, and you could press for half. So you were exposed for $300 at the most. Yeah, but uh, it kept you focused. There's right. You're not just looking at the pretty trees and listening to the birds. I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for putting some kind of pressure on every shot that you hit if you want to play at the highest level. There's no just going up and you know tapping in because let's say let's say you just go up and you just wing a five footer whether or not you make it or or not if you don't make it 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 does a little more damage than you actually think even even if you're not trying but you're just like why would I waste my time not trying I might as well take my time go through my routine do the same thing that I'm going to do for every shot and I think that's a huge part uh and teaching younger people is like just do the same thing over and over and over and try to get out of result oriented and more into your actual process, which I think that if you're going to create a process, there needs to be something on the line. There needs to be some kind of risk and some kind of reward. I always think it's interesting to you talking about like the, 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 you know, the uh, gunslinger mentality on the guys in the PGA tour. Like my, if I took my wife out to a golf tournament, she, plays two rounds of golf a year she doesn't you know she could really care less you know I'm, i do the golf thing right and i just said though here's a group walking on the wednesday program tell me who the pro golfer is she'd be able to figure that out a mile away without knowing one of the guys out there just the way they walk down the fairway right it's the same thing you with can my tell. wife my wife plays 18 holes a year we'd play a couple couples events scrambles in the uh in the summertime at my club and she she got offended once she goes you wouldn't you wouldn't pick me for your team i'm like no and she goes why but she got a little bit offended i'm like why why would you not pick me i was like because you don't care if you win or lose and i don't want that on my team <laughs> i no i, that's I what care my wife does and i need you to try to win and if you don't care you're giggling it's like it annoys me <laughs> We, we, my wife and I do like two or three wine, dine, and nine at uh, Kishwaukee Country Club in DeKalb, Illinois. And we're like out there with a group of friends. And like the girls, for the most part, they don't they don't give two shits if we win or lose. The guys are grinding over this thing for nine holes, right? Because I can't not help it, right? They're more interested in where's the wine and is the music loud enough. And, uh, yeah, it's funny, man. We do the exact same thing. We're like we're grinding over these five-footers, and they're just like, I don't know. I'm yeah, wearing a and- cute outfit, and I want to play, and I want more wine. Yeah, where's my rosé? Where's my rosé? We're out of (laughs) rosé. Drive, drive to right. Drive back to the clubhouse and get more. That's you know why we're like you know getting exact yardages. Where's the wind coming from? You know you can't turn it off, right? Like it's all within reason. But like I agree with you. Like if I'm out there to do this, like we want to win. If we don't win, that's okay. But I'm going to try hard. Yeah, at the same time, I will tell you what. So up up in Washington, where I live, Lakewood, Washington, I play at Tacoma Country Club. we 
have a game and our, our handicap system shuts down between like October 15th and March 1st. And we don't enter any scores for that time. So you're locked in at whatever your handicap is when you go. And I was still, I was still playing up until August. So I was still fairly, fairly sharp. And I've been hustling lately trying to get this little media project off the ground and I'm not playing as much. I'm playing maybe once every, let's say 10 days. And so my handicap's the same, but my skills are slowly going down. Just like anybody knows, if you don't have a club in your hand all the time, all of a sudden it's just a little bit of a guessing game. And so I'm playing to a plus five or plus six, depending on the tees out of my club. And I'm realistically about a scratch right now. And I'm just getting fleeced <laughs> hand oh, over yeah. fist by everybody. I'm, I'm giving too many shots for, I mean, I'm not giving too many shots because that's what it is, but it's, it's hard for me to compete and it's really starting to grind on me. But a couple of days ago when I got the sponsor exemption in Knoxville, it, it flipped the switch a little bit. I'm like, all right, I, I have something to prepare for now. For me, it was hard stepping away from the game that guys would ask me to come out and play. And I'd be like, all right. I'm like, oh, you get to practice a little bit before? I'm like, for what? Like, I don't, I don't have any interest really at, at this point. I'm playing with you guys that are all a, a very efficient golfers between a scratch and five handicaps. But at the same time, I've played with the best in the world. And it's, I, I have to get in a different mindset knowing that I'm going to have to start giving people shots. And it's a little new strategy now. <laughs> One, I'm sure they love beating you, right? Like you got to be the target out there. Oh yeah, and oh, I hate yeah, it. Right? And I hate right. it. And I and I have been the target for the last five months. And I'm I was so happy when uh, March first came around and I can start entering scores. But it's going to go lower again now that I'm going to start putting in a little work preparing for this this tournament. And, and this tournament coming up in Knoxville. As far as you said, does it give me any? Uh, leeway as far as going out and freewheeling, I'd say yes and no. Like my, I still have this goal. Like if I go out and win, and all of a sudden I can parlay this into another golf career, that's the goal. Like I'm, there's a big opportunity for me to to go out and do that. And even if I can uh, not win, because I know that's a little bit of a stretch, which just as far as what I've been doing, but I there's good golf in me and I know that there is, it's just a matter of getting it at the right time. And if I have that goal, let's say I, I can finish in the top 25 and roll that over into another start and another start. Um, I still have status out there so I can get in the reshuffle. I'm excited, man. Uh, I, the fact that I didn't go to Q school and I don't have a full schedule, the fact that I got a sponsor exemption, I really hope to take advantage of it. And not only that, I want to do the, the people that gave me the sponsor exemption, I want to do them proud. Yeah. Yeah. And you're a competitor, man. Like that's the mindset you should have, right? Like if you're going to put the work in behind it and you've been there, you've won, you know what it takes. Like you, it's like you're, you know, 56 years old trying to do this, right? You're in your thirties still. So it's not like it's, it's, it's not realistic here. No, I'm, still pl- I'm, I'm, I'm pumped to play in a tournament though, because that's, that's the biggest part that I miss. It's just, the itch to be out and on the road. The it, It's been interesting trying to figure out really who I am without being a full-time golfer. Yeah. So there's been 
fighting some battles of not of I don't know depression and anxiety of what's the next move going to be because golf don't you've heard a lot of people say it even if especially like Kevin Kisner even if you're not winning golf play pays pretty well mm-hmm. to play pretty solid and when you get away from it and that's all that you know and I've graduated from school in 2006 and now we're looking at 16 years later I'm like what what are my skills <laughs> I don't I don't really know what my skills are outside of hitting a seven iron to a couple feet and hopefully making some putts but don't you I would argue your personality and your persona from doing it for that long just kind of like Colt was always funny witty smart turned it into a broadcast career yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I'm attempting right? to do. So as far yeah, exactly. as yeah, PGA Tour Live, I've been doing. I'm actually hosting uh, Monday after the players on Sirius XM with Colt. His Drew right. Stoltz is one of my good friends, and when he's going on a vacation with his family, so I'm going to fill in for them. I've been filling in a little bit for the golf uh, channel on there for PGA Tour Radio occasionally. So that's been fun, just kind of getting reps in. And then I've got something brewing on the side that I'm trying to get built. But again, it's just, it's, it's time consuming. And a, a lot of it is, it, it's exciting right now trying to, to make something happen and, and not really knowing whether or not it'll take off. But the excitement, it's the same thing as early on in the golf career when you're, you're chasing it and just trusting that it will happen and trusting the process. Yeah. But you, like I said, though, I think you've laid a great foundation if there is going to be a media thing like you stand out like guys who know who you are it's a certain look it's a personality right and i think the golf coverage is also getting a little bit different which guys like you i think are going to be more in demand versus the traditional wear the suit follow every correct political thing never say anything bad about a player if they f up right i mean like like i think colt's doing a great job and it's a little bit more refreshing it's a little bit lighter and it's a little more fun it's a little bit more of the shit you would give each other if we were playing around a golf like I don't even know you, but I'd be like throwing little barbs at you by the third hole and you'd be jamming them back at me. And those like, I think it's changing a little bit, right? Where it is people want to see more realistic banter back and forth between the announcers versus the, well, he's got a three footer on number seven and back to you. But like, it's no, like give me somebody with some personality. I think it's going to be easier too. I think it's in a position right now where Colt's coming in and he's refreshing. And as far as, some of the other guys that are out there uh, on the CBS coverage. I, I think Nance is always going to have a job just because he's got the most beautiful voice known to man. I feel like he could have an entirely different career just reading books on tape. But I think that some of the guys are becoming a little bit, I don't want to say irrelevant because they've done so much in the golf world, but Colt's still young enough that he knows a lot of the young players coming up. He knows a lot of the players still playing. They're still, I mean, he's 36 years old and he's going to have a really good career because he knows and has relationships with all these people. When, mm-hmm. when you're out there and you have an older guy come up that you definitely know who they are because you follow golf, but at the same time, they have to get to know you uh, if you're playing well and, and let's say your first week you're playing well and they're, they're covering you and they come out and they chat to you on the range. There's only so much that they can find out in that small window of time besides what they can find out on the internet. There's, there's not as much a, of like the interpersonal relationship 
with the older guys. I think that's where Colt is really has a strength is that he has relationships with so many guys that he's able to kind of show that in his coverage. You, you got to watch that a little bit because is it hard for you to put on, well, I'm using this for media, so I don't want to use this. Is this on the record, off the record versus talking to my friend? Is it sort of been any situations on that where you got to think, am I talking to this guy as a fellow tour player or a media member? Uh, for sure. But I think that both myself and my friends know that that's what it is. And they, being friends, they put trust in you to not make them look foolish out there, make them, make them look good. And that's part of the skill I think is being able to re- relate to the player and the the crowd or the audience at the same time and make it fun and witty but at the same time, not putting them in a bad position that could hurt, potentially hurt them with sponsors or potentially make them look foolish. But at the but same you have time, to call a bad, but you have to call a bad shot if you see it, right? Or a poor decision. Oh, yeah, or a bad yeah. outfit. Like what is? Yeah, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, and, and, but but that's the thing is that I think that's something that Colt does pretty well. I think it's something that I do pretty well. Is that people know that everything that we're doing is coming from love and from friendship. And this is just kind of part of the new chapter of our life, trying to create something for ourselves at the same time as maybe exposing them a little bit. But I think that anything that we say is going to be, is going to be pretty factual. So when it comes down to it, if I go out to dinner with somebody in the evening that I kind of roasted, they're going to, they understand why, because they, Mm -hmm. they deserved it. (laughs) Or it's fair. Right, that yeah, was a bad shot under the time, or the wrong club choice, or right. I mean, it's you got to call it like you got to call st- balls and strikes, as you yeah. said, as a as a tour player. One hundred percent. And I haven't known. I'm mean, I'm interested to see what happens with Colt, being that he's on the major coverage on CBS. I'm still streaming right now, which I'm really having a lot of fun doing, just getting in in reps, uh, talking about it, and trying to be more smooth with just the way that I speak. And a lot of it is different when you have somebody talking in your ear while you're talking. And naturally you usually stop talking when somebody starts talking, but you just have to keep going. So a lot of that is becoming a little bit more natural. Uh, But I'm interested to see if it does change at all with friendships. I don't see it with people that I'm close personal friends with. uh, But at some point it, it may, it may hurt relationships at some point. I don't, again, I don't see it happening and it it does. It's a little scary in the back of my mind, but with the right people, I just don't think that I'm ever going to really cross the line with uh, a friend. It'll be more somebody that I know on, on the edge that I guess I may cross the line with, but I don't, that's the thing is that you don't want to ever cross it. You just want to tow it. Yes, and and I think you have to, I mean, I would assume most of those guys would agree with you at dinner that night that that was a shitty golf shot, and you're right. I mean, they they understand, you know, there's going to be coverage of this, and they're they're used to the pressure and have the spotlight on them, so, right. you know, and man up and deal the, with it. The, yeah, the people that I hang out with, too, at the end, they're going to be like, oh, well, it's easy to sit in the booth and start calling it when you, your game couldn't cut it. I'm like, yeah, I got you, dude. I get it. <laughs> 
Yeah, but you've been on the other side of the coin too, so you understand. You know, they, they, I'm assuming they respect the fact that you've been out. It's not me doing it; you're doing it. You've been on both sides of that coin, and you you know what it's like to be the player. And now you're kind of flipping sides. So, I think there'd still be what respect from their side that they trust you that it's yeah. not going to be over the line. Yeah, one hundred percent. And the fact that I have done it, and I have relationships. Same with Colt that he has relationships with these people that really brings a lot of insight to the viewer and comparing what they, what you've done in your life, what the player and the interaction in a group may be, or what the, what the player may be feeling as far as stress coming down the stretch. And I think that's really something that you're trying to do is make, make golf fun, make it interesting and really just cover, cover the shots but make it entertaining and, and relate the viewer and the amateur golfer to what could possibly be going through professionals' minds. My, my fantasy is to get uh, J.J. Colleen and Petey or J.J. and Ed Lohr in like a 16th tower with a case of beer and just let those guys do a commentary I, on a PGA 100 I think it's gone. Oh, my God. I think everybody has thought about that. And Can like almost, almost like a mystery science theater 2000, like just where you're, where you have the three little heads at the bottom and they're all commentating and throwing popcorn at the screen. Yep. With a beer, but I just don't. No, <laughs> the only thing it won't I, happen. It won't happen it won't because happen. the PGA Tour won't allow it to happen. No. Can you imagine that shit show of a disaster of getting Petey and JJ with a case of beer in a booth and just put them on the Saturday afternoon coverage on like a par three? Yeah, I want to. Oh my see- god. Yeah, or what if they did it this week at Saturday at the Players? Can you imagine, imagine? on seventeenth hole? It would be the greatest thing said, ever. Oh my gosh, these nuts are shriveling up. Who knows? Oh yeah, right. Say. And like literally get them lit enough where somebody has to carry them out of the tower. Like it would be the greatest broadcast. I'd watch it, but I like this everybody place. would. I think it. It's, it'll be interesting to see how this Netflix show does with the PGA tour, because I think you're going to see a lot more swearing and extracurricular. I don't know if it's all on course. I'm interested to see how the show actually goes, but it could open doors to something similar. Like if you could have a premium, like let's say uh, the NFL ticket with, or guys that have, what's it called? The, the hard knocks. Yeah. 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 Where I mean, it's pretty ruthless in those locker rooms. I know it's a yeah. completely different sport, and our our sport has a pretty clean image, and it's pretty cookie cutter as far as charitable causes and yada yada. But I really think that this Netflix thing might open doors. I'm interested to see how they actually film it and what the PGA Tour allows to be on it, or if there yeah. are any kind of agreements that are on it. Because as far as I'm concerned, the people that I've met that are the biggest degenerates in the sports world are golfers. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you, they could do like uh, – I would I would watch a Netflix you know series on like Steve Marino, right? Like how great would that be? I love that guy. I, right. That would be the greatest thing ever. Just like follow him around for a month. Can you imagine how interesting that shit would be? It would be great. I think that you could do it with so many different guys on the tour. And – it's. I mean, the only thing is, it's, it's one of the sports where you can, you can go out and tie one on the night before, and show up not feel super great and put up 
the round of your life. Um, the lowest round I shot on the PGA Tour was 62, and it was at Court of All for what used to be the Safeway. I'm trying to remember what it was called, but it's 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 during the Safeway, the Napa tournament now. They moved it over to Napa, but it was in Court of All in Northern California. Yeah. And I had food poisoning the night before and was just throwing up all night. I get up and get on the range. I probably hit three balls in an hour and was just so fatigued doing it. And I would just sit down and I threw up on the range a couple different times. And I go out and I tie the course record that day. It's the same thing. And like, if you're hung over in golf, if you go out there, you have the ability to almost beware of the sick golfer. You know, you, you have the ability to, all you want to do is get done. And what's the fastest way to get done? Get the ball in the hole as fast as possible and go sit on the side of the green. T- tunnel vision, two right. and a half you, hour round, get it done. You, there's no more thinking. All you're thinking about is how terrible you feel. And you strictly go back to ability and relying on everything that you've done. You're like, just hit it over there. It's just, it becomes so simple because you're not thinking about anything else other than how terrible you're feeling. I vote Steve Marino Netflix series. I think that would be the greatest thing ever. I can get on board. Yeah, I would too. Yeah, I well, second I got a, it. I got a couple quick hitters for you, and we'll get you out of here, man. Thanks for doing this today because I really, really appreciate it. So whatever kind of comes to your mind on uh, on this standpoint, and um, I'll throw a few at you here. So you kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but if you're bringing three other guys, you're going to have a money game. And uh, you're going to have dinner afterwards, so you're going to hang out and have some drinks. Like, who are your three favorite guys on tour you're going to take to have a, a fun day like that? Uh, two of them very quickly come to mind, Kevin Kisner and Charlie Hoffman. One, those guys are the best shit talkers I've ever seen out there on tour. I enjoy having a drink with them afterwards. My rookie year, Kevin and I were both rookies together, and that was who I piled around with, a bunch hate, and Jim Renner. Um, and Charlie kind of took me under his wing at UNLV. He was older than me, but he was still living in Vegas and invited me out when I was still in college. And I started playing money games with him and Dean Wilson and Bill Wundy, other UNLV guys when they came to town, Chris Riley, Chad Campbell, Bob May was in the group. And I, the first day I showed up, I didn't, didn't really have any idea what I was doing in the game, but Charlie was a big influence on me, and he's fun to go out with at night. Yeah, I don't know the fourth. I'll say he doesn't play anymore, but I'll say Graham Dillette. Graham's still – I think he's still got starts and still has status, but he's had been fighting some back injuries. But we played a lot on the Canadian tour together, and that guy, that guy's fun to go out with at night. He's Canadian, so he can definitely get after it. That's a pretty good group right there. That's a Kisner, good group, yeah. Kisner, Hoffman, and Dillette. That's having yourself a day. All right, I'm with you on that one. Um, you lived out in Vegas. I'm sure you caused some mild trouble in Vegas. What's the best Vegas story you've got? Yeah, I'm trying to think of one that I can say Can't on you? air. Right. Yeah. I don't want. I don't want. I don't, hopefully, the statute of limitations is past the point as well. All right. So I was in. Uh, I was in college, and Charlie got back from Colonial, and he just finished fifth, and he calls me when he's in the airport. He's like, hey, I land tonight. Can you pick me up from the airport and take me back? And I was like, yeah, I can do that. That day, I had, it was 
locals night in Vegas. So we ended up going to a club called Trist at uh, the Wynn. And when I picked Charlie up, I, I was planning on going that night with JC Deacon, who's now the, uh, what is he doing now? He's the head coach at Florida men's golf team. Uh, my brother-in-law lived with me at the time and we were all planning on going out there and it was like two for one bottle service. So we're like, all right, this is what we're going to do. And we're going out. And I picked Charlie up from the airport and we go back to his house and I asked him on the way to his house. I was like, Hey, uh, we're going to do this. You want to go out tonight? He's like, yeah, man, I'm in. He goes, let's just go back to my house. I got to check some mail. I got to do some stuff. I was like, all right. So we go back there amongst his mail. He starts going through it. And he opens this letter, and he's got a $10,000 fine from the PGA Tour for throwing an F-bomb. <laughs> and he doesn't have any recollection of what it is. He's like, I'm not paying this. I'm not I'm not paying this. I don't know actually what happened to it. But we get dressed, and we go down. And we're supposed to have multiple people, uh, like seven people. Everybody bails except for Charlie, my brother-in-law, and I. And we have three bottles of booze. Oh, God. So we start kind of going in and Charlie calls his college roommate who still lives in town and he and his wife come. So we have five people in three bottles of booze now, which is way better, but we end up polishing this thing off and we get back to back, like out of the club. We're, just, we're pretty banged up. We go over to the casino. I have zero money in college. Charlie starts gambling and like, you can hardly understand what he's saying the entire time. I end up having to go, I have workouts, it's 2.30 at this point. We have college workouts. It's my senior year, and it's May. I'm out of school at this point. I'm done. I'm graduated. But we still have regionals and nationals to go. And I get a cab, and I go, and we have workouts at 5.30 a.m. So I get a cab, and I get, get to the workout. And my assistant coach shows up and he, I'm sideways and he is so mad that he ends up leaving the rest of the team there to work out. And he takes me back home and he, I, he, he tells me to get in his car and I sit in the back seat behind him, directly behind him. There's nobody else in the car, but I'm afraid he's going to hit me. <laughs> so I get behind him to where he like can't reach me and he's just chewing me out the entire time. Or he drops me off. I get out and he's like, I need to talk to you later today. I'm like, yeah. Okay, man. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm I'm scared. But at this point I get so lucky. My head coach doesn't show up. This is the first time he may find out about this, but I don't know if he even listens to podcasts. So that'll be good. Um, <laughs> when I get back to my house, I go into my condo. And my brother-in-law is sitting there, and he's got like a Roberto's Taco Shop burrito just sitting on his chest, hasn't taken a bite. <laughs> and I have my phone, and I call Charlie. I'm like, hey, uh, I got kicked out of workouts. This isn't – I don't think this is good. He goes, oh, all right, well, uh, I'm, at, I'm at a club right now. Do you want to come? I'm like, yep, hang on. So I, I wake up my brother-in-law. I'm like, come on, we're going to go to this club. I wake up, probably not the best decision I made in my life. I get in my car and we drive to this club. And when we get there... Wait, so Charlie never went home? No. Oh, my God. Charlie never no went home. No wonder you took him in the group. We go he meet never him. went home. No, we go meet him. And by the time I get there, it's probably 5.45 or 6 in the morning at this point. 
And we walk in, my brother-in-law walks in and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I don't have any ID. So now I have to leave and go home. And eventually my brother-in-law comes back at like eight thirty in the morning after spending the next couple hours with Charlie. <laughs> like, what did you guys do? He goes, I have no idea. Uh-oh, that's, <laughs> Were you hung over? You had, I mean, your brother-in-law had to be hung over for two days from that one. Oh yeah, but oh. it was it was so a rough. Charlie one, Hoffman we, can he can get after it. Back oh, in the day. he can get after it with the best of them. Um, Love it. I can just throw you another little side story on how generous and what a boss he is. So we, it was a year, probably 2015, and I called Charlie and I was like, hey, uh, he had a place on the back of the range at TPC Las Vegas. And I asked him if I could come down before the Sony because it's cold and rainy and snowy up in Washington. I was like, can I come down just like for a week before and practice and play out of your place? He's like, yeah, man, I'm going to even be there. I'll be in San Diego, so you're welcome to the house. My wife and I go down for New Year's. We end up – we asked him if we could have a few people over since I went to school there. I still know a lot of people. So we ended up having like a little new year's gig. It was probably eight people, nothing big, but we made like a steak dinner, had some wine. Um, Charlie had in his freezer, a bottle of Don Julio, 1942. And I was like, ah, guys on tour, he'll be okay. So we polished the thing off and I sent him a picture (laughs) of the empty bottle. I'm like, Hey bud, sorry about this, but you're out of 1942. And he goes, oh, no, 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 don't worry. Go out into the garage. There's a couple cases of it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So we went back out and opened up another one. We felt bad polishing that off, but we definitely opened another one and had some. But the, the guy's always been a class act, and he'll he'll do anything for you, even though he's known as a single one being a dick out there. Oh, sounds like a good guy, man. I could hang with him a little bit. You could uh, hang with him for sure. He's fun. Best golf shot you ever hit under pressure? Under pressure. One that stands out where it's like you needed it and you, you know, you needed this for a cut or a tour card or a win. Like, uh, all right. No here, bullshit. Here, you got a man up here's, in your shot. Here's the best shot I've ever had under pressure. And it wasn't really a big tournament, but in my mind, it was the biggest shot I will ever hit in my life. I don't think I can outdo it. Uh, there is a pro scratch event in uh, Phoenix every year at Greyhawk, right before the Sony. And I play with Drew Stoltz, who's the sleaze on Gravy and the Sleaze and Golf Subpar. Um, and he and I have been friends forever. And so we're kind of coming down the stretch of this two-man thing. And a bunch of pros come out and stop and play before they head to Sony. But the last hole, we were two back. And I hole out for double eagle on the last hole to win. (laughs) That's a good golf shot. That's, I mean, under pressure, I don't know if there was that much pressure because there's there were a lot of drinks being drank. It wasn't like I felt a lot of pressure. But that was the coolest shot I ever hit. Under pressure, I don't know if it was a a single shot, but the best round that I had played in my life was 2013, and I had had an abysmal year. I missed the first 13 cuts of the year on the tour and just was in a dark place and not playing well. And I kind of, the last few events, I just really came to grips and really was at ease with, I just, 
need I had to go back to Q school. I was going to have to go back through the whole thing. I was going to lose all my status. But going into the final event at the Wyndham in Greensboro, I was 238th on tour. If you finish outside the 200th on the on the FedEx Cup, then you you lose all status. Like you don't go back to Corn Ferry, you don't get to do anything. So it was 238, and in the final round, wasn't anything great. I was probably the like 30th place. And I'm paired with Rory Sabatini and we're walking down the second hole. And he asked me, he's like, how, how are you playing this year? I'm like, man, I, I'm struggling. I'm 238 on FedEx. He goes, all right, let's make 10 birdies today. And every, so part the second hole, I birdie three and he's like, all right, nine more. Let's go line nine more. And he, he was at my back the entire time cheering me on. I shot six under no bogeys. He also shot six under, and that moved me to 198, which helped me get at least I got to go to uh, Corn Ferry Finals yeah, and, and the playoffs. And there I missed the cut in the first one, but I played pretty well the rest of the time. But I ended up being the bubble boy, and I just missed my card, getting my card back because I gave myself the opportunity at the Wyndham to get into that. Right. And huge. Yeah. And once I got through there, being that I was the bubble boy for the tour, I was one of the top seeds going in. So I had a full year and a full schedule on Corn Ferry and played well. And that's when I got my second win out there. And that round gave me a ton of belief in myself. So that was that was a big round. It wasn't the big shot. The big shot was the, the pro scratch event. But yeah, it was it was pretty awesome. Best two or three golf courses architecturally you've ever had the opportunity to play in. What makes those golf courses fantastic? And not necessarily tour courses like, you know, could be a Pine Valley of the world or, you know, pick your other, you know, top rated places in the world. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't played Pine Valley. I have a, a friend that has invited me a few times and I just haven't made the, the real effort, which at some point I better do that. Otherwise I, you may resend that. Uh, I'm a big fan of old Donald Ross courses. Um, Who I think, oh, yeah, so I good. think, I think Pinehurst number two is just straight in front of you. Pretty good. I haven't had the ability or the opportunity to play Augusta, but just being that I got to go out there, it was pretty intriguing. And like modern day designers, I like most Fazio courses. Um, I just think they're very pretty. I like, let me think here. I'm just going to go to tour courses just because it, it's, it's easier. Uh, I really like Riviera. I think that it is just old school hard. Nothing's tricky about it. It's all right in front of you. It's just difficult. If you don't hit a good shot, then it's, it's tough. Um, I played the, U.S. Open in 16 at Oakmont, another one that is just right in front of you. Nothing tricky about it. It's just hard. If you don't hit the fairway, you're going to have a hard shot. If you don't hit the green, you're going to have a hard shot. If you're above the hole on the green, you're going to have a hard shot. Brutally, brutally difficult, though, right? Just brutally difficult. Yes, yeah, just super difficult. Like, there's just no room for error. And then I'll say Olympic Club. Olympic has a very – the same thing as Oakmont. It's just right in front of you. It's just – 
difficult. You have to be on the proper side of the fairway. You have to be on the proper side of the hole. Um, my favorite course, and I don't know if it's architecturally the best, but I just like the layout of it. It's called the Preserve, just outside of Monterey, California. And it's just on this old wildlife preserve that is at the base of the redwoods. So you'll see random redwood trees throughout this, uh, the course, a lot of wildlife as far as boar and deer and yeah, pheasants running around. It's it's pretty awesome. Where do you put Pebble Beach at? I think Pebble Beach has some of the best holes in the world, but I think you could throw any course in the country on that piece of property and it's going to be spectacular. I don't think you can screw up the water holes at all. You could, you could change all the holes that are on the water there and just make them slightly different. And they're still going to be good. I think the 18th hole there is arguably the best hole in the world as far as risk reward and scenic view. It's pretty good. But, yeah. Yeah. But when you get to the holes that are not on the water, it's just a little blah for me, like one, two, three, and then you get to 11, 12, 13. 12 is pretty good part three. It's just this very small green when you're hitting in a long iron. Um, and when you're when there's no wind and there's no elements, it's absolutely gorgeous, and it's pretty gettable. You can score on it pretty well. But when it is windy, it's it's tough, and that's that's the defense that it has. Yeah. It's it's absolutely gorgeous. I'm not sure if it ranks in my in my top as far as courses that I would want to play every day. But I would definitely like to play the holes on the water every single day because they are spectacular. Yeah, that stretch between like eight, nine, ten, eleven—that's pretty good. That's, yeah, I mean, you could yeah. throw you could throw. You could throw four, five, and six in there also, and seven. Yeah. Yeah, seven's an awesome little hole. Yeah, you just take every hole on the water, and it's awesome. Yeah. I just, yeah that's a cool place to play. I always ask people where that one is, or uh, I've been fortunate enough to play Cyprus once. That was that was pretty impressive as well, right? Just, I haven't played Cyprus. I see it whenever we're playing uh, the tournament out there from the third hole at Spyglass, but I haven't played it in – Here's here's a funny story. I had some buddies that went out there, and they were invited. I'm not going to name names. It's just so that they can somehow maybe get invited at some point. But they were guests of a member. They did not play with the member, so they weren't allowed to go in the clubhouse. They weren't allowed to really practice or use facilities. They just had to go to the first tee blind. And so they didn't know that, and they show up an hour early thinking that they're going to go in, buy some stuff, which – Apparently they could, but they had to send in somebody that worked there to do it. Uh, they weren't allowed to get any drinks or whatever. So they're like, okay. So they're with one of my buddies in, in the truck and they sat out in the parking lot and literally tailgated for an hour before in the parking lot of Cyprus. And I don't <laughs> know. If they, shoes. I, oh, oh yeah. Right. Oh, the whole nine yards. Literally putting the tailgate down, sitting on it and just like drinking beer. And I don't know if anybody was super impressed with that. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd want that first tee shot either without, like, proper warm. We could be in a car. It's the strangest thing because you, like, fire it over the road. So right. It's a, a little low on the face on that one. It's a pretty boss move, I think, by um, the Cypress group, though. The fact yeah. that if you're if you're not playing there with a member, it'd be like, nah, man, jungle rules. You just got to show up to that tee cold. 
<laughs> yep. Go play. Hey, I respect the guys too for dropping the tailgate and literally being like, "All right, if you leave me no other choices, this is what yeah. I'm doing." I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to first t shirt like, dead sober. Right. If you don't let me get warm on the range, then I'm going to get warm out here. <laughs> exactly. You know, you do what you got, you got to do in those survival conditions. Right. Well, hey, hey, man, like, thanks so much for doing this. Like, I really appreciate it. I enjoyed the conversation. Like, good luck with everything in the media world and still playing. I think you're going to do. You're going to do great in the media world, man. You got a personality and a look, and people know who you are, and people are ready for new commentators, voices, perspectives, and professional golf. And I think it's going to be really interesting to watch your career path over the next few years. I think you're going to do great. I really thank do. you so much. I appreciate the time, and thanks for having me. I'm I'm a fan of everything that you've been doing. I followed you since I started seeing your your product on Will Wilcox. Well, I appreciate. Yeah, I mean, I love doing the equipment side, and and I actually love doing the podcast as well. It's it's always great to have these you know interesting conversations with with people in the game and people I admire. And I've been you know fortunate enough that I get to do both sides of it. So I really do appreciate it. That's awesome. Well, thanks again for having me. Keep in touch. Love to talk again.